Hello and welcome to 20 Minute Marketing. Thank you for listening to the show. I hope you're having a great day. Let's get started with this episode straight away. So during this episode, we're going to be discussing the topic that a lot of people really dislike doing, but it is a fundamental part of both marketing and sales, and that is public speaking. So I wanted to have an episode on public speaking for two reasons, really. First off, I see a lot of content and marketing advice on social media and search engines, yet public speaking isn't always covered. So I thought it'd be helpful to get some expert advice on how we can improve. And secondly, because on a personal level, I'm pretty bad at it. So I wanted to try and improve myself and learn some tips as well. I know that I'm here speaking on a podcast and over the last year, I've gotten much more confident listening to my own voice back and putting things out. But public speaking is still a big step up and like most, uh, puts me through the motions, even though I know it probably shouldn't. As a result, I've kept my eye out for potential guests and I've ended up discovering today's guest, Simon Raybould from Presentation Genius, who I'll introduce now. So, hey, Simon, how's it going? It's going pretty well. It's slightly crazy with COVID-19 around, but we're coping. Yeah, that's good to hear. I know we're sort of both working from home, so a bit of an adjustment. Could you spend a little bit of time telling us about yourself? Okay. I started my career as a research scientist. I was looking, my PhD is actually looking at the causes of childhood leukemias. I spent 24 years as a researcher and then became centre manager at one of the UK's largest research units, um, then dug my escape tunnel into the real world. And alongside that, I've been a playwright, I've been a teacher, I've been a lighting designer for dance companies, um, I've been a fire eater, which is, uh, yeah, I think it's, you know, it's, it's not, not many academics can claim to have been a fire eater. <laughs> I don't think they can now. So what was it that led you on to presentation genius? It's not as big a shift as you might think, actually, because I discovered that when I was working as a researcher, the research in my field, at least, was so far ahead of what people were doing that I began to get interested in why people thought we needed more research, we need more research, we need more research, we need more research. In fact, what we need was to apply the damn research that we'd got. And then I did realise that the reason people weren't applying the research that we'd got is because they didn't understand it. And they didn't understand it because scientists absolutely sucked at explaining it. So I got much more gradually interested in the explanation of stuff rather than doing the research itself. And that's led you into this role where you're able to help people with speaking and presentations and how to, to deliver a project. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I, I spent three years pretty much doing nothing but researching how to make decent presentations. That was the, uh, the, the thrust of what I was doing at the university at that point. But yeah, definitely qualified. Well, yeah, I think one of the things that makes me a bit different is that when I train people, I don't do it on personal experience. You know, it's not a question of having done a couple of dozen presentations and got away with it and teach people what I do. What I do is train people in what the science says works for most people most of the time. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm interested to find out some of your tips and advice. So stay tuned, everyone, and we'll dive right in in a moment. So let's get started with our conversation. So just to provide a bit of clarity before we start, we're going to be I'm going to be asking questions from the point of view of a public speech. So someone going to a conference, a networking event or a trade show and giving a speech in front of a live audience that requires a presentation. With that being said, if you are planning a sales pitch or a webinar or anything else that requires a presentation, then I'm sure that you'll still be able to learn a great deal from Simon's advice. So we're going to break this into three parts. So we're going to look at preparation, the presentation itself and execution. So how to deliver that presentation and make sure it goes well. So first off, let's start with preparation. 
So say I have an upcoming presentation. How far in advance do you think I should be starting to prepare? Oh, you're going to hate me because I'm going to give you the standard answer here of it depends. <laughs> um, sorry, uh, it depends on how important the presentation is. So if it is just your weekly update to the boss, there's no point in doing more than just a, you know, the minimum amount of presentation just to preparation just to keep him happy. On the other hand, if you're talking in front of a conference for the first time and there's maybe $5 million of sales at risk, then you probably want to be talking about a month in advance to start the low level burn. Um, but to be honest, anything is better than nothing. Even if all you do is go through it on the train on the way to, this, to, to, you know, to the gig, that's better than trying to wing it. Don't for one second think that I'm advocating just rehearsing on the train on the way to the gig. I'm not. I'm saying that something is better than nothing. But the long and short of it is it's, it's a value for money proposition. You know, if it's, if it's a big gig, you take weeks. If it's a small gig, you take minutes or hours. Say it is a big sales opportunity that you can convert a hell of a lot of money from. How many times should we be practicing to make sure that we nail that presentation? Oh, I, I want to differentiate here between practicing and rehearsing. And I'm going to steal some jargon from theatre where they talk about the rehearsal process. They don't practice a scene, they rehearse it. And what they do is just like every musician uh, and every actor and every good presenter, what you do is you go through it to find the bits that don't work. So that's your general kind of run through but instead of going practicing 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 over and over and over what you do is you find the bits that suck and you do just that bit over and over and over and then you go on to the next bit that sucks and you practice that over and over and over and if a bit worked first or second time there's no need to go over it it's called deliberate practice or, or attention paying practice that means you can reduce the amount of rehearsal time you actually spend by well Estimates vary between sort of 30 and 50%. And it means that some of your presentation, you might only have gone over it once or twice before the real thing. Other bits, you might have gone over it 20 or 30 times. So it's a bit of a tricky question to answer because you don't rehearse the entire presentation. You just rehearse bits of it. And the beauty of that is that it stays fresh. Um, you know, there's bits that were confident. You've not rehearsed them until they're stale. They're still fresh. You're semi-improvising. But those bits that were difficult, you can do those absolutely in your sleep, which gives you so much confidence. And do you think we should be practicing and rehearsing in front of others? Or is it just a case of going into your own space and doing it there? Well, the only way to find out if it works is to do it in front of other people. But the big mistake that a lot of people make is do it in front of friends, family, colleagues at work and that kind of stuff. And what that does is raise the stakes. I want you to imagine if I go and make a presentation in front of a bunch of complete strangers and I suck at it, the consequences of that are practically nil. It's embarrassing, but I can walk away. But if I have to practice in front of strangers, sorry, in front of friends that I'm going to see again and again and again, or colleagues at work that I'm going to see every day for the next goodness knows how many years, the embarrassment of that failure is going to come back and haunt me forever and ever and ever. So by all means, practice in front of people, that's great. But what you want to do at the very first start is practice in front of people who are like your audience to get good feedback, but who are, you know, they, they don't matter to you. So for example, if you're practicing a pitch for a networking you know, seminar or something along those lines, maybe the first few networking meetings you want to go to are networking meetings where you know you will get no sales. So even if you suck at it, even if you cock it up completely, you haven't lost any sales. So you rehearse in front of people, but people who do not matter. 
sometimes I've practiced speaking in front of close friends or family and you don't get a true reflection because you're trying to be perfect in front of them. Uh, there is an advantage to rehearsing from the family, by the way, particularly if you've got teenagers that you can borrow from somewhere, because teenagers are brutally honest. If you can explain things to teenagers and hold their attention, you, that's a pretty good indication that the presentation is not too sucky. And then I'm just going to move on to one final question in terms of preparation, and then we'll get into the presentation. So I know you mentioned practicing on the train and, and then also sort of practicing as far in advance as possible. So is hmm. there sort of a cutoff point that you need to say, hey, this is as far as I'm going to get? Yeah, it's in an ideal world. And I recognize that we don't live in an ideal world. But for a big gig, you probably want to stop practicing a day or so in advance of the gig itself. Just like you did for when you're revising for exams and things, you want to stop revision a couple of days in advance to let things sink into your subconscious so that they become part of your everyday experience rather than a conscious effort thing. I, I know that's difficult to do, but that's the ideal. So we're just going to move on to presentations now. And this is the, the really interesting part of how you can make your presentation stick and, and stand out. So how can we make a bigger impact with our presentations? So, yeah, there's one big set of questions that people ask that really make a bigger impact with their, with their presentations if they remember to ask it. Because the mistake most people make is they are defensive in their presentations and they regard the presentation as a problem and they start telling people what they know. But actually what professionals do is completely the other way around and they ask themselves a really simple set of questions. And the first question is, what would a successful presentation look like? What do I want to get out of this presentation? And the second question is, and how do I best do that? It sounds blindingly obvious. It sounds really simple. But what most people do for their presentations is they start off by telling people about themselves and then they tell them the process and they give them a whole bunch of background, boring rubbish that nobody cares about. And they don't actually ask the question, by the end of this presentation, what do I want my audience to do differently? The big thing holding your head here is, Instead of saying the presentation is about such and such, you ask yourself the question, this presentation is to achieve such and such. So, for example, you don't make a presentation about the new tax regime. You make a presentation to make people adopt the new tax regime. It changes the way you design everything. It, it, it sits at the back of your head and changes absolutely everything. So you don't need, for example, to tell them why the new tax regime has come about. Nobody cares. What you need to do is tell them, why they need to do it, and how they need to do it. I'm guessing most people could probably skip a large chunk of their presentation out that they've probably planned in their head by going through that process. Absolutely. We call it the curse of the expert, um, because the curse of the expert is that you know so much about your topic that it's very hard for you to see the wood from the trees, and you start telling people everything you know. Because in your head, everything is important. Because let's face it, if it wasn't important, you wouldn't have dedicated six months of your life to it. From the audience's perspective, however, they just need to know. That. So here's, a, here's a, an example. Let me give you an example deliberately, not from marketing, just so that nobody can freak out about it. I, I'm guessing that you have used a spreadsheet at some point in your life, right? Yeah. Okay. Have you used a spreadsheet to sort a column of data? I have, yeah. Okay. And do you know the actual algorithm that is used to do the sorting, the actual computer code? I don't think so. No. Nobody does and nobody cares. But if you, are, if you are a computer programmer talking about how to use Excel, do you know what happens? They spend 20 minutes talking about how cool the algorithm is and how long it took to actually code the algorithm, yada, 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 yada. 
But actually, all the audience needs to know is random data in, sorted data out. So you're right, people can take out huge swathes of their presentation by just giving people the bit they need rather than the bit the presenter wants to tell them. That's really insightful straight off the bat. And then we're going to look at a few tips on actual design now. So the first one I've got is number of slides. Is there a ratio, which is like minutes to slides that you have, or is it with the flow? <laughs> uh, um, the reason I'm laughing is because it's one of the most common questions <laughs> that, I, that I get all the time. And the rule of thumb is you want one concept, one point, one thought per slide only. So the number of slides is not dictated by how long you've got. It is dictated by how many ideas you have got in your presentation. Now, that in turn might be dictated by length, but the number of slides itself is, is not related to how long you've got. So there are slides I've used, for example, where I've had the same slide on stage for 10, 15 minutes while I've told a story. There are other times when I've changed slides every 10 or 15 seconds because that's been the best way to make my point. So the key question here is not how long should the slide take? The key question here is how long should the slide take to make the point I need to take? Makes sense. Is there a limit on the number of words per slide? There's a recommendation. The recommendation is zero. That's going to freak out some people. But the reason for that is that the more information you give people, the less likely they are to remember any of it. So presentations are very, very poor at giving people data or at least they're very poor at giving people data that they remember. The best use for a presentation is to give them the reason to want the data, if you sort of mean, and then the data comes in handouts afterwards and all of that kind of jazz. Now, that means what you're trying to do in making a presentation is to give people reasons to be excited by the data, to become emotionally engaged with the need for the data, and that's best done visually rather than with words, or stories rather than with words. But basically, no bullet points if you can possibly, possibly, possibly bring yourself to avoid them. Got you. And then I see a lot of people who give presentations and then for the first quarter of maybe their presentation, they stand there clicking the hit play on a video and then the video does a lot of the work for them. So is that something that you recommend or is that something that you try and stay away from? Why would you need to be there if the video does it all for you? <laughs> sort of answer <laughs> my question. If you... Yeah, absolutely. There are a couple of technical issues to do with the video. The first, of course, is to make sure that the sound works, because you'd be amazed at the number of people who screw that up. And the second is to make sure that your video is on the same hard drive as your slide deck and is embedded in your slides, because you can't rely upon a net connection or a YouTube connection or whatever to play the darn video when you want it to play. So make sure you have the, the, you know, the video is with you on the same hard drive and that you have tested it and preloaded it. Here's, a, here's a, a really powerful, useful tip for PowerPoint users in particular. Run the slide deck through at least once before the audience gets in there, because that gives PowerPoint an opportunity. If it's going to glitch, if it's going to take time to read a file, such as a video file, and embed it within itself, it's done it when the audience is not there rather than when the audience is there. Blindingly obvious, I know, but you'd be amazed at how many people just expect videos miraculously to appear out of the ether. Do you have any tips for themes and branding that can help you stand out? Yeah, don't do it. That was easy. <laughs> just don't do it. <laughs> um, the reason for that is, is that a presentation is a gift to your audience. You're trying to give them something. You're trying to get them to do something. You're trying to give them some information. And let's face it, 
if you need to put your logo in the corner of every damn slide, two things happen. The first is, how sad is it that you don't trust your audience to remember who the hell you are and not be interested in enough? But secondly, everything you put on your slide that is not relevant to the point of that slide is a confusing distraction to your audience. So get the damned logos out, get them away. Now, I understand that some organizations have got to have themes and templates and things for legal reasons. But other than that, best practice is to avoid them so that each slide is unique and each slide is custom designed for the message on that slide. Yeah, that's a great point that I probably didn't think about before now. What are some of the ways that we can generate engagement by using our slides? So maybe that's a competition or subscribing to an email or an SMS list at the end of end of the slide, maybe? Right. I am almost allergic to marketing. So you're asking the wrong person. (laughs) (laughs) However, there is something I've alluded to earlier on, which is that presentations are really bad at giving people data. They're really bad at giving people the nitty gritty how to's. What they are good at is giving people the why you need to. So one really simple way, one blindingly obvious way is to make a presentation about why it is important to do X. And if you want to know how to do X, you can download a PDF from yada, 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 yada. I need your email to send it to you. So we're just going to move away from presentations and to the part which is execution. So you've got this great presentation, you've practiced it, and now you need to deliver it. So do you have any tips or exercises that can help during the day of presentation? Um, I'm going to start the night before. There's a reason that I use travel lodges when I'm doing big presentations. And I know travel lodges are not desperately glamorous, but the reason I use travel lodges is because, A, they're convenient, so, um, so I can always find a travel lodge near the venue. But, B, every travel lodge is exactly the same, <laughs> uh, which means that at no point is my brain given over to thinking, how do I work this? What do I do? Where is lunch? What, how, what time is breakfast? And all that kind of stuff, which means that come the gig, my brain is completely and utterly fresh. Um, there are a couple of other present uh, tips I can think of here. One is to use your peripheral vision. Peripheral vision is the stuff you see out of the corner of your eye. Uh, and I know this is a podcast, but I'm waving my arms about just to demonstrate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's this stuff you see out of the corner of your eye. Um, and what people tend to do when they're making a presentation, particularly if they're novices or nervous, is that they obsess about the audience and they get really frightened because they focus just on the audience. But if you can bring yourself, if you can make yourself become consciously aware of your peripheral vision, it puts the audience in context. So, for example, I want you to imagine that I'm sitting facing a microphone in my office here. The only scary thing is the microphone. And if I obsess about the microphone, I'm going to get nervous. But out of the corner of my eye, I can see the window. That's not scary. My cup of tea, that's not scary. My favorite pen, that's not scary. My Kindle, that's not scary. Um, A cold mug of tea (laughs) that I haven't drunk from earlier (laughs) on, that's not scary. My spare glasses, that's not scary. My laptop on recharge, that's not scary. So what it does is it dilutes the microphone. So the microphone is still scary, but it's only one scary thing in the context of 20, 30, 40, or 50 other things that are not scary. And the other trick that people find incredibly useful in these circumstances is one called sentence zero. So I want you to imagine the first sentence of your presentation. Hello, my name is whatever. And what we often do is when we're nervous and anxious, we let all the high pressure air at the top of our lungs out in that first bit. So you go, "Uh, hello, uh, good afternoon. My name is Dr. Simon Raybould. (laughs) And you sound a bit nervous, you sound anxious. So what I want you to do is put a sentence in your head before that 
and say that sentence silently out loud. So you're breathing out as though you are saying that sentence, but silently you're breathing out and saying it silently and then going in straight into the first sentence of your presentation. So in my head, I might say, oh, there are 10 fewer people here than I'd expected. That means I've got some spare handouts and good morning, everybody. My name is Simon. What the audience hears is a second of silence followed by good morning, everybody. My name is Simon. But what that's done is it meant that I've exhaled all the high energy, high pressure air from the top of my lungs in that silent sentence so that by the time I get to the first sentence of my presentation, the good morning, my name is Simon, my voice sounds much cooler and calmer and more collected. I had no idea that that was something that you could use to help you just get started. One final question on the execution part. Is it okay to carry notes or use your phone or tablet if you aren't quite sure what you're saying? Okay, so if you practice properly, you won't need it. That's the very first thing to say. The second thing is, if you do need it, then by all means, get some reinforcement because nothing looks worse to an audience than you not knowing what you're talking about. So it's better to use notes than to forget things. However, the best place to put notes very, very, very clearly is in something called presenter view. Uh, Most people, I think, will be familiar with presenter view now these days. It's that setting in PowerPoint or Keynote or whatever software you are using where what the audience sees is different from what you see on your laptop. So you put your notes in presenter view, look down at your laptop, you see those notes, but the audience doesn't see them behind you. They just see the big slide behind you. I take that one stage further because I've got Keynote and I'm using Macs uh, and I can put my notes on my phone as well. So I can have at one side of the stage, I have my laptop with my notes on it. At the other side of the stage, I will have my, um, my iPhone with my notes on it. Most of the time, I don't need my notes, but if I do, I just have to look to either side of the stage and I can see those notes which are not projected onto the screen behind me. So we're just going to finish off the main section right there. You've given us so much advice. I know it's hopefully going to help me the next time I have to make a speech and I'm sure it'll help anyone that's listening. And if everyone stays tuned, then I'm just going to ask a couple of quick questions on career and fun advice to finish off. So as always, we're going to finish off with a few lighthearted questions that are just related to careers and advice and just a little bit of fun to, to finish, really. So do you have any memorable stories, Simon, from when you first started out in your career? <laughs> oh, no, this is so embarrassing. Um, maybe it'll help people realise that even the pros suck at this sometimes. Um, yes, I have literally fallen off the back of a stage. <laughs> what happened was I, I looked out at my audience. I realised that they were all experts in their field. And who was I to tell them what they were doing? So I took a pace backwards Um, just away from the lectern to gather my thoughts, looked up. They were still there staring at me. I took another pace backwards just to gather my thoughts. And unfortunately, the lectern podium was was only two paces deep and I had taken three paces backwards. Um, And if anybody is asking how you recover from falling off the back of the podium, the answer is there is no recovery. All you can do is apologise and move hastily on. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not quite sure how... How I'd react to um, falling off the stage. Hopefully it never happens. It wasn't my finest hour, let's put it that way. (laughs) And then if you could give one piece of advice to business owners or any marketers listening, then what would it be? 
the only way I can do marketing is to gamify it because I, I, I dislike it so much because there's so much of it which is just about discipline and stuff. So what I've done is created a set of um, index cards with marketing tasks on them. I shuffle them. I pick a task, uh, you know, pick a card, do that task, have a cup of tea, shuffle the cards again, do that task, have another cup of tea. It, it's the only way I can... I can bring myself to do the boring slog through stuff of marketing. It is really interesting that you've, you're using those, though, because if anyone's in a bit of a rut, they could use that style to, to get things done and, and, and work down a list. One final question, and then what is your favourite marketing task, if you do have one, and why? It's really clear. My favourite marketing task is outsourcing it to people who know what they're doing and who actually enjoy it, because it's, you know, it's not my strength. A less facetious answer might be obviously standing on stage. I really get a you know uh, I get a kick from standing on stage. I don't do marketing when I'm standing on stage. I just try and be helpful. I just try and give the information. I just try and get people engaged. If I have been good enough, if I have done what I'm supposed to do, then people will come to me. Is my is my theory? Is my hope? Yep, that's a nice way to to finish off the episode. So I hope everyone enjoys this one. It's a little bit different to our usual conversations, and I think public speaking does play a big role whether that's in marketing, sales, or or anything else, really. So yeah, thanks for listening to the episode, and thank you, Simon, for being a great guest. My pleasure.